Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here, and we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Last week, we covered the entirety of chapter 24, in which Jesus speaks of the fall of Jerusalem and his eventual return and the end of the age. And then uh, chapter 25, which we are skipping over this morning, is full of parables demonstrating how we ought to live in light of Jesus' eventual return and the end of the age. And for those who are curious, we are skipping over chapter 25 this morning because we actually covered it last summer during our parable series in which we unpacked all of the parables from the book of Matthew. And of course, you can go back and listen to the podcast if you're interested. This morning, we shift from the long clashes and discourse and critique and parables that have made up the last few chapters and into a moment-by-moment narrative leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. We pick up in Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, several chapters worth of discourse, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Last week, we covered 51 verses. This week, just 13. But I want us to start this morning by placing ourselves in the shoes of of the original disciples. The man that they know and love has just entered Jerusalem as king. And not only that, but he has done so on the lead up to the Passover. 
which was uh, the festival uh, celebrating Israel's, Israel's original uh, exodus, escape, liberation from slavery in Egypt. So the city is crammed to capacity with uh, Jewish people from around uh, the known world. And in front of the crowds, Jesus has just successfully challenged the religious elite uh, on their own doorstep. And now, in response, they are plotting to take him out. He must be a false messiah, they think. And he's misleading the crowds. He must be stopped. So they are scheming behind closed doors. And they aren't quite sure how it's all going to play out yet. But they know that they have to try to take him down. Will they catch Jesus? They don't know. Can they catch him quietly without the crowds noticing? Can they have him executed? Will their Roman oppressors and overseers be on board with the execution? There are many unanswered questions in their minds. Jesus, on the other hand, knows what is to come. And to the astonishment of his disciples, he goes to them and he tells them how this is going to go down. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And we cannot underestimate how shocking this would have been to the disciples. Here is the man who, who they believe to be the coming victorious Messiah, who, who, has, who they, some of them, have already confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Here is the one who just finished telling them, hey, you will see me coming on the clouds of glory, and I will return one day to wipe evil off the face of the map, to bring God's judgment on all of the evil and darkness of this world, to wipe it clean, and, and to begin a new heavens and a new earth under my kingship. Th that's this man who's talking with them. He's going to do all of that, and they know it. He's just finished spelling it out for them. And if I'm one of the original disciples, I don't see any barrier to Jesus ending the age on the Passover festival tomorrow or, or the day after in their minds. I mean, what else needs to be done? Jesus can show up end the age, those who have placed their faith in Yahweh, the Creator God, and His uh, Messiah, Jesus, will be saved. They'll be resurrected into the new heavens and the new earth. Everyone who has rejected God and His Messiah will be wiped away. And we could begin experiencing this, this resurrection life by this weekend. I mean, I mean it's, it's this impending thing. I mean, why wait Jesus, you're here. Surely this is the time. But then, this same victorious Messiah, who they believe has come to bring political freedom to Israel and to end the age, says that he's going to be crucified. 
And, and if he's going to be crucified, then that's it. it it's, it's over. Rome wins. Israel suffers on. The disciples look utterly foolish and lose their dear friend and leader in the process. I mean, a crucified Messiah was a false Messiah. There were many false messiahs who came around this time and all of them failed and many of them were crucified. And the moment they were crucified was the moment they were proven to be false. Okay, we know that we just staked our claim on the wrong guy because Rome just won again. They snuffed out our hope again. And, and here comes Jesus, who, who they're certain... <laughs> This must be the guy. And yet, in the midst of this tension, Rome is poised on the edge of its seat. It's the Passover festival. If there's going to be a rebellion, it's going to happen on the Passover festival, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. Rome is poised on the edge of its seat, sword raised, ready to snuff out any rebellion, any messiah. And, and then you have the religious leaders scheming behind closed doors. How can we take him out? How can we put him to death? And in the midst of it, Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die in two days. And, and I can only imagine the grief and profound confusion that must have swept over the disciples in that moment. Those two things are irreconcilable. In their minds, he cannot be both. And yet, Jesus insisted, not just in this moment, but all throughout his ministry, that he had to die, that he must die, that this was his purpose, his hour, the very reason he had come, was to die a very certain and specific type of death. And if Jesus had come to free Israel from political oppression, then crucifixion would seem a very ineffective way of achieving that goal. Jesus, I don't understand how is that going to save us from the Romans? Because from my perspective, it seems quite foolish. It, it is the essence of defeat. But Jesus had not come simply for the political freedom of one nation. Jesus had come for the total freedom of all nations. You see, in the beginning, humanity rejected God. And, and in doing so, we plunged ourselves and creation, which was under our care, into this state of chaos and sin and, and, and darkness and, and dysfunction. And, and we twisted the world within us and, and the world around us into a terrible mess. And as a result, ever since that moment, a true human flourishing ha has sat beyond our grasp, in sight, but unattainable. Uh, like a giant carrot 
that, that all of humanity is chasing after, convinced that we can catch it, and yet we can't. The means for human flourishing is beyond us. And humanity itself, through the fall, was left to the absurdity of Satan, sin, and death. These, the scriptures tell us, are our true enemies. And every human being is born under their power. And every human being would have died under their power if it weren't for the event that's about to happen in two days on the Passover. As Jesus approaches the cross, he knows that he will be taking on the sin of the world. He knows that he will be taking our place for our sin. The scriptures say that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In and through Jesus, the great exchange is taking place. The holy for the unholy. The righteous for the unrighteous. The Son of God given over not for his friends, but for his enemies. Having taken on the sin of the world, he would die the death that we should have died so that we might come alive to him and, and receive the eternal life that he so longs to share with us. Here is just one way of describing what happened. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, not just some, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that includes Satan and the demonic, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. In the beauty and the mystery of the cross, we are set free. Free from the past, free from sin, free from condemnation, free from the very real and very dark spiritual powers at work in the world, free from the reality of death and, and the fear that it once held over us. We were once enslaved to all of those things and more. And yet in and through Jesus and what he has done on the cross, we are no longer slaves. Jesus flipped the entire world order on its head and he set the captives free. And consequently, we now miraculously walk in victory over the very same things that used to hold power over us. All of this is happening in and through Jesus. And the people who are catching wind of this earth-shattering stuff that Jesus is up to, they stand in awe of him. 
They, they see the, the, the radiant and radical grace and love of God that is coming to bear on our reality through Jesus. And the people who really see it, who really catch a glimpse of who he is and what he's up to, they respond with extravagance. Including the woman from today's passage. This woman who anoints Jesus with perfume, many believe was a prostitute. But she gets it. She, she gets who Jesus is. She understands that she has been forgiven, holistically, completely forgiven and set free through this man. And she has to respond. She, she couldn't sit still. She couldn't hold it all inside. Something inside of her came undone in the most beautiful way. She sees the extravagance of God's grace in Jesus. She is captivated by his love as he begins this path toward the cross. And, and she has to respond. And she brings the best of what she has. And she pours it out on Jesus to anoint him, to honor him, to rejoice in him, to, to celebrate him. By some estimates, this perfume uh, would have been worth a year's wages. And she pours it over his head, anointing him, honoring him, rejoicing in him. And, and this perfume is so costly that the disciples are, are flustered and they're upset because they don't get it. Where the disciples see impending death and experience confusion, this woman sees beauty and she experiences grace. And, and she's moved in, in her inner heart to come and respond. In the eyes of the disciples, what she does in pouring this out is, is extravagant, it's over the top, it's even wasteful in their eyes. And yet, when you peel back the layers of reality and you see who Jesus actually is and what he's up to and how this woman responds, you begin to see that they actually make sense together. Last year... I had the uh, insane privilege of traveling to both Uganda and South Africa. Um, this year, the farthest I've made it is like Coeur d'Alene. But last year, Uganda, South Africa, it was amazing. And many of you know um, firsthand that our brothers and sisters on the African continent uh, tend to be much more colorful in their worship. And they even sing some of the same songs that we do, but their response and engagement in those songs is a little bit different. Here is a quick clip from Uganda. And on and on it goes. 
Imagine like two hours of that. And, and, and these are their gatherings. And I don't know if you can uh, see it in the video, but people are waving shirts and bandanas. There's people who are like lifting up Bibles and just like waving them around in the air. If you look really closely, there's a guy in the back who's just lifted up his chair and he's just like pumping it up and down during like, like they're just going nuts, right? There's a lady who brought a whistle, like a ref's whistle, and is just blowing the whistle in the middle of worship, just using it to like praise God. And, and it's amazing and it's different. Well, there was actually one American that you probably didn't catch in the clip, and he's, he's off to the side checking his iPhone, <laughs> which for us, to be fair, is a form of, of worship. Uh, <laughs> But you, you get into this context and, and into these type of worshiping communities. And, and to be honest, at first, it's a little uncomfortable. There's a reason that, that one of the guys is like, oh, maybe I'll see what kind of text messages I have. Maybe I'll see what people are doing back home. Maybe I'll check Instagram. Because we don't worship like that, Right? And, and so to, to step into a community that worships that way uh, at first is uh, uncomfortable. Uh, but what, what you realize in, in the midst of this, as you begin to kind of settle in and become accustomed to the way that they worship, you begin to realize that the cross is very real to them. And, and what looks like wild extravagance to us uh, turns out to be a very fitting response. These Ugandan brothers and sisters, they worship as if the things they're singing about are actually true. And most of them have nothing. Um, they're largely subsistence farmers, barely scraping by. The next year, the next month, the next meal for some of them is uncertain. But they worship, and, and they worship with extravagance, over the top, more than necessary, in, in, in excess. And I can only imagine what would happen if Jesus walked into that room while they were worshiping, can you imagine the, the explosive, over-the-top, the, the cheering, the, the tears, the celebration that would break out in that? I have no doubt in my mind that some of these women would bring a year's worth of their income and pour it out at his feet in celebration, just to rejoice in who he is. There's no doubt in my mind that, that some of these women would, would go and, and wipe his feet with their tears because that's who Jesus is to them. They've seen the extravagant grace of God. It has flooded their reality and, and they're moved to respond with extravagance. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Now, I'm not saying that we should all worship um, just like our Ugandan brothers and sisters. And I'm certainly not asking anyone to, to fake it. 
right? Uh, we, we're not asking anyone to, to hype anything up or to lift your chair or to bring a whistle or, or, or any of that. Those, those aren't the takeaways from today's teaching, though I think we would accept it if you want to. I realize that the video that we just watched is from a, a different place and a different culture, different continents. So I, I get all of that. But, but here's my point, is that if all of these things are true, if Jesus really died to fully and, and finally forgive us, if he's really pouring out eternal life, into a dying world, if he has really rescued us from darkness and defeated in advance every single enemy that we are up against, if all of those things and more are true, then it would make sense that some of us would raise our hands in worship. It would make sense that some of us would dance for joy like the kids were in the back as we were worshiping earlier. That, that makes sense. It would make sense that some of us would cry out in praise or in prayer without worrying quite so much about the people around us. And I understand that not all of us connect with God brilliantly through musical worship, right? There are all sorts of avenues by which we connect with God. And there's a segment of the population and a segment of our church. Um, and for you, hey, musical worship is just not your primary avenue. It's not, it doesn't necessarily feel natural to you. And so I, I'm not asking you to pretend uh, that, that it is your primary avenue. I, I'm not asking you to, to raise your hands for the sake of, of raising your hands. But I know that there's this whole other portion uh, of, of our church and of our culture that does need to be encouraged to, to, to raise their hands during worship as a physical declaration that I believe what I'm singing about. I, it is a physical declaration that I believe and, and celebrate and respond to the things that we're thinking about. And so without asking anyone to fake it, I know that many of us do need to be encouraged uh, to respond in that way in this place. But none of that is my point. My point is simply this. The Ugandan worship you saw is extravagant, it, it's beautiful, and it's accurate. They worship as if the things they are singing about are actually true. They, they see God's radical grace and they respond with extravagance. Just look at the woman from the passage that we read this morning who anointed Jesus. She's saying the same things that our Ugandan brothers and sisters are saying. They're saying, God, I see you for who you are. I see your love and your grace for what it is. And I want to respond in a like-minded, similar extravagance. I'm going to respond as if the gospel were true. And if I'm honest, most days I look more like the disciples 
than I do uh, this woman who anointed Jesus. My mindset day in and day out is, hey, hey, let's focus on the task at hand. Let's, let's tackle the to-do list. Let's hit our targets. Let's get stuff done. Life is about hitting the numbers and, and accomplishing tasks. And that requires focus and that requires efficiency. Not waste, not excess, and certainly not extravagance. I've got a church to help lead. I have a family to provide for. Food to put on the table. I've got... Uh, I'm a homeowner now, and with all the stuff that comes with that, I'm in seminary. I've got endless tasks to accomplish and not enough time to accomplish them. Deadlines are looming. Budgets are tight on all fronts. There is no room for waste, no room for inefficiency, no room for extravagance. That's me. And then there's the cross. Where God held nothing back, but instead gave everything. Down to his last drop of blood, down to his final breath, unending love, unwavering grace poured out on a thirsting and and, and hurting world more than we can absorb, more than we can comprehend. In excess and extravagance, God pours out his love and his grace and his mercy and his beauty and his life and his forgiveness. In absurdity, he pours it out over our world. You know what Paul prays over his church? He says this. He says, I pray that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, there's more of it than we can comprehend, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Why does he pray that? My guess is, because we usually don't grasp it. And, and ultimately we can't, but most of the time we don't even really try to, to, to grasp how long and high and deep and rich and, and unending and pure and true and unfailing and faithful is God's love poured out in abundance. You will never exhaust it. It will never run dry. You, you head down to the ocean with a bucket and you tell me when you get to the bottom. Never. It is impossible. That is God's grace over your life. It's extravagant. Far more than necessary. Far more than was needed to accomplish its task. And this woman with her perfume she recognized it. She, she recognized this love and it evoked a response in her. It stirred something in her and her response seemed completely wasteful and extravagant in the eyes of the world. But if you know the love of Christ and you see her response, it makes perfect sense. 
And if we see and experience the cross for what it is, we too will become those types of people. And if we don't see it, then we probably won't. And I'm not asking for all of us to raise our chairs in worship or to go out and buy expensive perfume. But what this means is that our lives should be ruled more by extravagant grace than by efficiency. The disciples had a mindset of efficiency. This could have been used for the poor people. This, this was wasteful. This was over the top. It didn't make sense. Why did you pour out $50,000 worth of whatever? It doesn't make... They were ruled by efficiency, not extravagance. And trust me, I know I'm speaking to a room full of efficient people in a culture that drives and values efficiency. But, but I'm speaking, and not with condemnation, but as the biggest sinner in the room. My life is ruled more by efficiency than grace. And not extravagance, not whimsy, not radical great efficiency. I do not currently have the pouring out perfume kind of life. And what that means is that I have to reflect deeply on God's grace and my relationship to it and, and allow my reaction. What is my reaction to God's grace? I have to wrestle with that day in and day out. Jesus tells a story about a, a son, a disobedient son, who insults his father by asking for his inheritance early. And after receiving his inheritance, he, he adds more insult by deserting the family and leaving. And, and he takes off. And if you read this story from Luke chapter 15, you will likely find yourself uh, identifying with one of two different reactions to God's grace. That's what the parable is about. And so the, the first reaction is that of the wandering son who goes and, and blows a, an exorbitant amount of money on, on prostitutes and wine and wild living and all of this stuff and comes crawling back home expecting uh, punishment. And what he encounters when he arrives home is grace. His father uh, runs to him, hugs him, brings him in forgives him, reconciles him, lifts him back up to a place of honor from a place of dishonor. And what follows that moment can only be described as extravagant. He, he puts a robe on this son who's come home and a ring on his finger. And then he says, hey, forget about the efficiency of bread. We're going to have a feast. We're going to kill the fattened calf. We're going to make carne asada or whatever the Hebrew equivalent would be. We're going to bring together all of it. We're just going to just whatever you want. It's, it's yours. It's, it's this extravagant event. It's like a year's worth of income poured out on, on an unworthy person. And, and if Judas was there, 
he would have been shaking his head. <gasps> Unbelievable. That, that fattened calf could have been sold at the market and blah, 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 blah. And, and right at the end of the parable, a new character enters the scene. It's the older brother. He's been home all along, faithfully serving in his father's household. And he sees the party and he says, what is this? What's all this extravagance? Why this waste? And for him, really? You've got to be kidding me. And the father's response is just classic. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Wait, what? Are you telling me that we could have had a feast every night for all of these years? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. My grace is that extravagant. You are a son or a daughter. All he has is yours. All of his grace, all of his mercy, all of his love, all of his forgiveness did not run dry the moment you were adopted into the family. It is yours. It is now your birthright. Everything that he has is yours. He's pouring it out. He, he's not withholding it. It is this endless river that is available to you. But do you recognize it? Do, do you see it? Those who do will find themselves invited into extravagance toward God and others. As we see and receive the extravagance of God, we are invited to embody and reflect that to others. You will become, over time, the type of person who would pour out what is precious to them in order to celebrate and honor Jesus. You would kill your fattened calf to honor the unworthy person. The alternative is that we don't see God's grace or we refuse to receive God's grace or over time we become numb to God's grace and we become the type of people who sit back and judge others, who sit back and are offended at God's grace expressed to others because we failed to receive and, and express and celebrate the grace that he's given us. We will become tight-fisted and stingy with God and others. People who are easily offended by the extravagant acts of others, as the disciples were in the words we read this morning. We will either be the grumbling disciples or the woman who poured out what she had. We will either bask in the extravagant grace of God and become the generous father from the parable and become at many times the unworthy son who just receives and receives and receives and celebrates. Or we will go the other way and we will be on the outside as the eldest son, as the disciples, grumbling, tight-fisted, efficient, but miserable. 
this week, I'll, I'll end with this, um, this week, as I was studying the passage, I, I began to see the ways in which my life is ruled by efficiency uh, over grace. And, and I began to see the ways that I, that I wasn't really embodying and reflecting God's grace to the people around me. And, and I was home uh, with my boys uh, one afternoon this week, and uh, my boys are three and, and one and a half, and um, the ice cream truck came down our street um, and, and it's a rare thing for that to happen. And so they're, you know, scurrying over to the window and climbing up on the chairs and like, oh my gosh, dad, dad, the ice cream truck's here. Like, can we get ice cream? And my first thought or series of thoughts was all the reasons why that was a bad idea, right? Oh man, those ice cream guys, they totally overcharge. Oh man, the boys, oh, they don't really need ice cream right now. I mean, we have, we have, in fact, if they do need ice cream, we actually have ice cream bars in the freezer that we got from Costco. I mean, that's, that's way more efficient. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll save that money so I can give it to the poor. Right? That effi- ruthlessly efficient mindset. And no sooner did I think that when I thought of this woman pouring out her perfume and how it reflected the -the over-the-top extravagant grace of God. And all of a sudden, I found myself sort of grabbing my wallet and running out in my socks to like wave down the ice cream truck as it was going down our street. And, And then I'm stopping him and running back in and grabbing one of the boys and running out and grabbing the other boy and getting him out there and say, hey, boys, whatever you want. You know, today, just, just go for it. Get whatever you want. And I tell you what, endless options, they chose the exact same ice cream bars that we already had in the freezer from Costco. So here I am paying four or five times, like the freezer was closer than the ice cream truck, right? And and in my ruthless efficiency, that doesn't make sense. But, But in their little minds, in their world, that, that's extravagant, and, and it's beautiful, and it, and it made their day, and it embodied more of God's grace than my ruthless efficiency, and it was such a simple thing, but, but it, it, it made a difference for them, and, and there was nothing efficient about it, but you know what? I don't want my kids to look back on their childhood and say, wow, my dad was so efficient. (laughs) Can you imagine? No. I I want them to look back on their childhood as adults and to be able to say with confidence, we were raised by a man who understood God's grace who embodied it, who reflected it. That, that, that's what I want them to remember. After the, the ice cream thing, I took my wife out to dinner, which I neglect to do quite often. And uh, we went to, to one of her favorite kind of fancy restaurants here in Spokane. It was long overdue. And, and I told her, honey, this is like fresh off the ice cream, you know, hi. I'm like, <laughs> honey, Get whatever you want. Which, if your wife is pregnant and in her second trimester, 
is a dangerous thing to say. And, and she, she kind of looked at me, like, excited, like, whoa, like, really? And, and she was probably thinking, huh, usually when we go to these places, Matt tries to find the cheapest dish and then, like, split it between the two of us. So, like, this is it, this is, yeah, I, you can say amen to that if that's you. But, but that's the norm. And, and it's just, we, I, I can't always be that efficient. No, not tonight. For just, just get whatever you want. And it was an amazing night that we got to have together. And of course, we fasted the rest of the week to make up for the bill at the end. But, but, it, but it was worth it for, for just once every three years to experience and embody, I promise I'll do it more than that, but to experience and embody, there was nothing efficient about that. I saw so many cheaper items on the menu, but that, that's not reflective of who God is. And, and, and I, don't, I don't want to be that person. It, it was if we sat down to dinner and God was saying, hey, as I pour out over you, would you do me a favor? Would you rejoice in it? And would you start pouring out over others? Would you pour out? Stop gripping the perfume of your life so tightly. That, that, that's not reflective of who I am. And I don't know what it is for you this morning or, or where you're at, but for me, it started with the boys and an ice cream truck and, and the way that I treat my wife. And, and from there, it, that's where it starts. From there, it grows and grows and grows. And, and it spills over into all these other relationships. You, me, we were made to receive, rejoice in, embody, and reflect the radiant and radical grace of God. And I don't want to be the guy who's remembered for his efficiency or, or for never wasting a dollar. I, I don't want to be the guy who's cheap with friends and families and, and neighbors and strangers and the orphan and the widow and my own wife. I, I don't want that. I, I don't want to be the guy who, who grumbles as he gives 10% to the church and is very careful not to give 11 because that would be inefficient. I, 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 don't, I don't want that life. I, I want to be this woman. I, I want to be like this woman. <laughs> who brings, right, the best of what she has. And, and without second thought, just pours it out. This is what God's grace has been like to me. So too it will be for you. And she brings the best of what she has because she knows that in Jesus, she's receiving the best. There's no question in her mind. And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. And as I studied the text this week and meditated on this, I, I had to ask why. 
We're not even given her name, Jesus. What do you mean? Everywhere, in every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as the gospel spreads and ripples across the world, in every place, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her, and we're not even given her name. And I was meditating on that. Why? Why is she to be so mentioned and, and honored all over the planet? And I don't know for certain, but I see her pouring out in extravagance as a reflection of God's extravagant grace. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, God's inviting us to do the same. Let's pray.